would take a Bible and turn with me to James chapter 5. Had a good intro to the discipleship hour this morning. I was dropping my dropping Anna off at uh, the three and four year old class. They're covering Genesis 3 today. And Clara was rolling out some Play Doh. And I said, What you doing? She said, I'm making a snake so I can crush its head. I thought, <laughs> Yes. It's good theology there. Romans 16 20. James chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. Uh, We're going to talk about the need for patient endurance until the Lord Jesus returns. I imagine all of us, even if our circumstances aren't exactly like what the churches in James's day were experiencing, all of us have the need for patient endurance. Uh, from the minor frustrations at home to tremendous grief over the sudden loss of a loved one, Uh, from small setbacks at work to great heartache over a wayward teenager, from slight opposition from the world to severe persecution and oppression. We all face various pressures from trials through which we need patient endurance, and not just any kind of patient endurance, but but the kind of patient endurance that glorifies God and displays the worth and the supremacy of Jesus. And God's Word through James is a help for us this morning, brothers and sisters. Let's read God's Word starting in verse 7 and then pray together. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Father in heaven, this is your word, and we want to submit ourselves to it now humbly. We want to walk humbly before you. We want to tremble at your word. We want to be fed by your word. We want to be strengthened by your word. Uh, We do have the hope that one day, soon, Christ will crush Satan under our feet. Until that day, we want Christ to root out all sin in our life that would give the enemy a foothold, and we want you to be praised in us as a people, even through very difficult trials and circumstances that we walk through. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So you will notice in verse 7 
that there is a therefore. Be patient, therefore, brothers. This word today on patient endurance is connected to the section before it. The situation in verses 1 to 6, which we looked at last week, was on where unrighteous people uh, are oppressing the Christian poor people. That's what's going on. Many of the poor people in James's churches are experiencing oppression. They're, they're not getting paid their wages. They're getting dragged off to court and condemned, even though they're innocent. So James warns the unrighteous rich of the Lord's return in judgment. It will be misery for the unrighteous rich. Now James is pivoting from warning the unrighteous rich to exhorting the saints, his brothers and sisters in Christ, you and me. But notice that he continues the subject of Jesus' return in judgment. Jesus' return in judgment not only has massive implications for the unrighteous rich, it also has massive implications for the Christian. James wouldn't have to say, be patient if the temptation toward impatience wasn't real. But it is. Every day it is. The pressure of our circumstances goes up and we start responding in ways that are not godly. James's congregations seem to be dealing with similar pressures of life. Various trials, he called it back in chapter 1, verse 2. And we've gotten a feel for what some of that trial looks like for them as a congregation. They're not only being oppressed by the rich world, but some of their own Rich brothers in the church are showing partiality. That was James chapter 2. They're being looked down upon because of their economic status and not even cared for when the needs are plainly evident. Under this pressure, what might you be tempted with? We don't have to guess what they were being tempted with. The letter has been laying that out for us all along. Here's, here's a few ways they're responding under the pressure. Sinful anger and retaliation. James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. They're not being slow to anger. They want to make, take matters into their own hands. And that anger is also giving rise to sinful speech. Chapter 2. 3, verses 2 to 11, they're cursing other people. Chapter 4, verse 11, they're speaking evil of one another. Then in chapter 3, verse 16, and in chapter 4, verse 2, James points out that jealousy, selfish ambition, and covetousness is at the root of their sinful anger and their sinful speech. I could see how even the poor could grow jealous at what the rich have, maybe even angry at God for not giving them as much as the other guy. The pressure has exposed that even the poor can be looking to find their significance in possessions instead of the Lord. They might even be dealing with some level of despair on whether God even cares about them and sees their suffering. They're crying out to Him in chapter 5, verse 4, and James has to tell them, be patient until the Lord's coming in verse 7, could it be that they've begun to wonder whether they're being heard at all by God? 
Could it be that the Lord's delay is causing them to doubt whether he cares about the injustices being done to them? They're also grumbling against one another in verse 9. Isn't that how it goes sometimes? Our trials can so turn us inward, we give in to self-pity and thoughts of, does anybody even care? And we start complaining about everybody else or venting our frustrations on everybody else. That's what's going on in these churches. That's why he's writing. These things reveal some very impatient hearts in the midst of trial. My friends, sadly, these sinful responses to trial, they look so much like our sinful responses. But what does James preach to them in order to help them into patient endurance? He preaches Jesus Christ. And in particular, he preaches the return of Jesus Christ to save and to judge. Look at it with me. Four times he repeats it in verse 7. Until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. End of verse 12. So that you might not fall under condemnation. His focus is how the return of Jesus Christ to judge motivates our patient endurance in the face of life's trials. Is, I wonder, is, is that a certainty that we run to when we are facing trials? Is the Lord Jesus' return a factor in your daily need for patience? Is the personal arrival of Jesus, when we will see Him in all of His unveiled glory, is, is that something that's at the forefront of our minds? when we are facing the pressures of life? Are we drawing from it? James joins the rest of the New Testament in keeping the return of Jesus at the forefront of our minds. We take the Lord's Supper here to keep the Lord's, the Lord's return at the forefront of our minds. One, because His coming in judgment will make all wrongs right his justice will prevail for us. And two, because His coming in judgment means that we will be held accountable for our actions too. Our Savior will finally be here and make the world right again. At the same time, we too will stand before Him to give an account. So there is both comforting salvation and sobering judgment. James teaches how to preach Jesus' return to ourselves when we're tempted to give up in trial, when we're tempted to grow impatient in our suffering, when we're tempted to forsake Jesus in our attitudes and in our speech. And he has four exhortations for us. The first exhortation comes in verse 7. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. As I said before, judgment is not a comfort for unrighteous, rich people. Those outside of Christ, it only brings them misery. But Jesus' return in judgment should bring comfort for those who are in Christ. For those who are united to Him by faith. It should bring comfort for the oppressed Christian, and it does so in this way. We can rest in the promise that God will right all wrongs. 
He will vindicate us on the last day. He will deal with our enemies once and for all. He will establish justice and bring us rest. But waiting for that day to come is very hard when you're the one suffering. We want justice now. We want justice right now, today. James reassures them of the certainty of Jesus' return. I mean, it's a given until the coming of the Lord. But he also teaches them how to wait. He says, wait like the farmer waits. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Impatience usually comes when we don't have control of the situation. Something isn't going our way. We, we want this kind of comfort or this kind of order or this kind of peace or this kind of judgment right now and everything is just fine as long as the day worked out like we wanted it to. But when it doesn't, we get impatient. We get impatient because we believe we can order our lives in this world better than God does. But James sets before us a different picture. The farmer doesn't control the reins. He's wholly dependent on God's provision and God's faithfulness to bring the harvest. Sure, he's active. He's, he's cultivating. He's, he's, he's plowing. He's fertilizing. He's praying. He's planting. But the early and the late rains are totally in God's hands. He must wait for the Lord to provide, trusting Him to work His purpose in His timing Likewise, we must trust in the Lord's faithfulness to work His purpose, to bring the day of judgment for our enemies and do it in His timing. His purpose and timing is better than our own. If He was any faster in judgment, some of us may not be saved. 2 Peter 3.9 teaches that one reason why Jesus hasn't returned is that God doesn't wish for any to perish. These are days of mercy. We must trust that God has good purposes for us and others by what seems to us to be a delay in His coming. Be patient, He says. The Lord will take care. Of things. He will take care of the evildoers in His timing. He hasn't forgotten us. Our soul must rest content that God is in control and Jesus will bring His kingdom soon enough. The guarantee that we have until that day comes is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the dead and the Holy Spirit who's been given to us as a guarantee that the harvest is coming. The inheritance is coming. So James says, be patient. A second exhortation comes in verse 8. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand or near. How is it that the Lord's coming is still near or at hand some 2,000 years later? We are reading this letter. Did James just get it wrong in his day? No, we know James didn't get it wrong because the Holy Spirit doesn't get anything wrong. We have to read the New Testament in light of the Old Testament. The Old Testament 
speaks of God's end-time salvation in terms of the last days. And the New Testament writers pick up that same theme. We, we saw it last week in verse 3. And they explain the last days in terms of that time period between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second comings. In light of Jesus' first coming, the last days of God's redemptive plan are truly upon us. They've been inaugurated, but are not yet consummated. So within the whole scope of God's redemptive story, the kingdom of God is in fact breaking into the present. It is upon us. The king has already taken his throne at the resurrection. And in that sense, the coming of the Lord is at hand. We don't know, and this is something that Jesus taught his disciples, we don't know the day or the hour of his return. We don't know how long these last days will last. But we do know that His coming is near in the grand sweep of God's plan. The Lord has assured us of His return with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the truth of His arrival should motivate us to establish our hearts. Now, James has mentioned our hearts a number of times in his letter already. For example, look with me at James 1.26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. He's talking about us speaking out of the abundance of our hearts. Talking about the heart there. Then James chapter 3, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Speak similarly of our hearts in chapter 4, verse 8. In chapter 5, verse 5, James and, and really the rest of the Bible, when, it's, when the heart is used in this sense here, this figurative sense, the heart refers to the causal core of our personhood. It makes us do what we do. Jesus said it, it's out of the heart that a, that a man, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft, and murder, and adultery, and coveting, and wickedness, and deceit, and sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, and so on. Mark seven twenty one. To establish your hearts is another way of saying you, you build into the fabric of your being the moral fortitude necessary to remain faithful to Jesus under pressure. You so set your heart on Christ and what He values and what His kingdom is about because His kingdom is almost here. We're not just passively waiting. We're persevering with all the might that He gives to us to stay faithful to Jesus under the pressures of this life. We're not giving our hearts over to the lusts of our flesh. We're giving our hearts over to the things that please our King. In other words, the pressures of our circumstances that are real 
that are heavy, that we feel, that bring tears, and sometimes thoughts of, I am going to break inside if anything else happens. The pressure of trial is never an excuse for sin. The pressure of trial is never an excuse for sin. Trials are never an excuse for letting our hearts wander into attitudes that displease the Lord. Do you ever treat the pressures of life this way? You know, no matter what they look like, we, we treat them as, as permission to sin. I know that I have. There are days when my attitude reflects like, I'm entitled to sin right now because of what they're doing to me or because of what I'm experiencing. But what that shows is a failure to establish my heart in Christ. It shows that I've lost sight of where he's taking the world. I've lost sight of the reward. It's, it's just around the corner. I've lost sight of the kingdom of righteousness and, and that kingdom of holiness that will one day flood the earth. I've lost sight of the personal arrival of my king and the fullness of joy that Psalm says is at his right hand. That's where our hearts must be anchored. We want the weight of the glory of the returning Christ to be like a massive ballast in our life ship. So that when the winds and the storms of life crash against the side of our life ship, we remain upright. We remain stable in our journey towards the destination. So be patient, establish your hearts. The third exhortation comes in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. Now that's very fitting, isn't it? Because our speech usually serves as a litmus test for the impatience that's in our hearts or the patience. Impatience within usually means chaos coming out of our mouths. In this case, we can see, we can very well see why these Christians might be tempted to grumble about one another. I mean, hey, some of their rich brothers are looking down upon them. They're getting stepped on by the world and, hey, I'm going to come to church on Sunday and be with my brothers and sisters and get encouragement and they're telling me to sit on the floor while they're having their conversations with their other rich friends. In my flesh, I'd have something to say about them too. And I imagine some of you have given in to the temptation from time to time to grumble about another brother or sister in the church. We walk through trials. We all face difficulties. We all face frustrations, maybe those frustrations have risen in our hearts in our dealings with one another and how easy it is to start projecting our frustrations on others. How easy it is to vent behind other people's backs. How easy it is to find someone close to blame for our problems. But in those moments, and I pray that they are only fleeting moments, we've forgotten something crucial. James says the judge is standing at the door. The judge is standing at the door. Isn't that an interesting connection? Maybe one we don't make all that often. 
grumbling about our brother or sister is partly the result of not considering Jesus' personal arrival in judgment. According to Jesus, in Matthew 12, verse 36, he says that we will give an account for every careless word that we utter. James chapter 2, if you look at it with me, verse 12 and 13, in a very similar fashion following Jesus here, he says this, so speak, okay, get that, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Verse 9 of chapter 5 continues what he taught us there in chapter 2, but chapter 2 gives us the opposite side of grumbling against one another. The alternative to grumbling about each other is showing mercy to each other with our words. And we talked about this. God's mercy towards us in Christ will inevitably produce mercy towards others. Those who have truly experienced God's mercy in Christ will inevitably produce mercy towards others. And that mercy towards others will help, will be held up before all on Judgment Day as evidence of whether we truly belonged to Jesus. Our mercy toward others in speech demonstrates that God's mercy in Christ is just too glorious to ignore. We must share it with one another. We must speak it to one another. We must extend mercy toward each other having been captivated by God's mercy in Christ. We deserve nothing but wrath every one of us. And in Christ, we get nothing but grace because He bore our wrath in His body on the cross. And there is none left for those who are united to Him. How can we grumble against those that God has made fellow heirs of grace? We must be merciful in our speech. Let's put it like this. We should be ready to open the door to the judge at any time our mouth opens. We should be ready to open the door to the judge at any time our mouth opens so that when he enters in all his perfections, our words please him. Our words reflect the same mercy that this wonderful king has shown to us. While we were still his enemies... Christ died for us. So be patient. Establish your hearts. Don't grumble. Instead, let's show mercy in our speech. The fourth exhortation, also dealing with speech, comes in verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. 
God gives this warning to keep His saints persevering in what is right. It builds into us that healthy fear of the Lord that Jeremiah spoke of so that we continue glorifying God in our speech until His arrival. In this case, James is teaching us that that we should also show integrity with our speech. And at at first glance, it might seem out of place to address swearing and oath-taking. I mean, but but several others have suggested, rightly, I think, that it, it fits quite well within the context where the rich are oppressing and dragging the poor into the court. Perhaps the stress that they're facing is leading them to make unrealistic pledges to God or even to these landlords to somehow alleviate their suffering. That is, they're not responding to the pressure with with patient endurance and prayer to God. They want out of the suffering. They and their way out is making promises to others that realistically they cannot keep. It's loaded with rash dishonesty. When Jesus addresses a similar issue in Matthew 5, verse 37, he says that anything more than letting your yes be yes and your no be no comes from the evil one. So this this helps us, these words from Jesus help us understand why James says it merits condemnation. The devil is doomed for condemnation. We don't want to speak like Him. Rather, Christians must be people of integrity in our speech. Even when under persecution and oppression from others, our speech should reflect the character of our Heavenly Father who is trustworthy and truthful. Ultimately, a lack of truthfulness in speech shows a lack of trust in the Lord. It's a kind of self-salvation. We're trying to get ourselves out of the jam instead of patiently trusting the Lord to save us. We're looking for quick solutions, even if they're dishonest, that will bring us comfort instead of trusting that the Lord is our ultimate comfort. And the day of rest is just over the horizon when the Lamb who sits on the throne will, will shelter us with His presence. Now, hearing all four of those exhortations while facing some of the trials that you're facing may, may cause you to ask, you know, does, does the Lord really know what kind of pressure I'm under? Is, is this really possible? Yes and yes. Yes, the Lord really knows what kind of pressure you're under. Psalm 103 says that He knows our frame. He even sympathizes with our weaknesses because God's Son took on flesh. He suffered in the flesh too, only without sin. Hebrews 4.15 tells us. And And that wasn't just under the pressures of suffering earthly trial. That was even in the face of God's wrath. That makes Jesus our only 
hope and our helper in time of need. He's not just example. He's our hope and helper in time of need. It is by His persevering through those things that Hebrews tells us we won't grow weary and lose heart. We don't have to because He has purchased us every grace for walking through those things Himself. And, yes, it's really possible to have patient endurance, but not in our own strength. We've got to go back to chapter 4, verse 6. Chapter 4, verse 6. But He gives more grace. Just lock those words away in your brain every time you start encountering suffering. But He gives more grace. But He gives more grace for this. These words to us, these exhortations, come from a gracious God who delights in giving His children good gifts. So yes, the Lord really knows, and yes, it's possible by grace. We also know it's possible because we've seen examples of His grace playing out in those who have gone before us. He gives us two examples to look at in verses 10 and 11. The prophets and Job. The prophets often suffered persecution from the world and and even others within Israel because they didn't like what they were saying. Uh, They didn't like the message that they had from God, so they persecuted them. Job suffered from what some might call natural catastrophes and calamities and spiritual warfare under God's sovereign design and permission. So their sufferings look different, just like our sufferings will look different, but they still serve as examples of God's sufficient and sustaining grace. And they also serve as fitting examples because both the prophets and Job were looking forward to the coming return of Christ. That's everywhere in the prophets. Just pick them up and read. But it's also evident in Job. Job 19, verse 25 to 26. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. So two examples of those who suffered and were steadfast through trial while they were drawing strength from the Lord's return. Okay? The prophets experienced blessing by remaining steadfast. We get this, verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Blessed. That doesn't mean chipper all the time while the trials are mounting up in life. Rather, it has to do with the reward of God's presence, your standing with God your, and who He is for you. We, we saw this already in chapter 1, verse 12. We're going to flip back there one page. Chapter 1, verse 12, where he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. There's the blessing. The crown which is life. 
It is the reward of life in God's presence. God Himself adorns His saints with His life as a reward for steadfastness. And there's no greater gift than God's gift of Himself, beloved. No greater gift. He is worth our steadfastness. This was the blessing that Job received as well. Verse 11 again. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Which might leave you scratching your head going, James, have you read Job lately? Does James' conclusion of Job shock you? The robbery of his possessions. The murder of his servants. Sudden catastrophe that fell on his family. The agonizing pain of losing ten children he loved so dearly in one day. They were just having a party. And a wind struck the house and collapsed on them. There are parents in Italy that know this pain right now. Some of you know the pain of sudden loss of people you loved so dearly. On top of that, Job was struck with loathsome sores. His wife tells him to curse God and die, and his friends aren't any better counselors with all their misapplied theology and callous judgments. And from the larger story, Job's suffering lasts for many months. In Job chapter 7, verses 2 to 3, he says, Like a slave who longs for the shadow, and like a hired hand who looks for his wages, so I am allotted months of emptiness, and nights of misery are apportioned to me. Some of you are walking through months of emptiness. Nights of misery. The pressure eventually becomes so great upon Job that he begins to ask those why questions. Why was I even born? if this is what's happening to me. Why am I suffering when I've tried to be faithful to you, Lord? Why do I cry to you and get no answers? That's what he says in Job chapter 30, verses 20 and 21. I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. And really, what lies beneath all of these why questions is ultimately, are you for me, God? Or are you against me?
Job never gets the answers to all of his why questions. But that's because all of Job's why questions get swallowed up by the who question. God gives himself to Job. God wasn't obligated to give Job anything. But God reveals himself to Job. Chapter 38, verses 4 to 7, the Lord responds, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Job, can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, Here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty Job? He who argues with God, let him answer it. This is God revealing himself to Job. And Job responds like this in chapter 42, verses 3 to 6. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I had heard of you, Lord, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He never got his why questions answered but he saw God. Seeing God's glory becomes enough for Job. God gave Job himself, and that is the ultimate blessing. That is his compassion and mercy to this sinner. And God has given us himself He gave His only Son to die in our place to remove our iniquities, to absorb God's wrath that was due to us, to remove all the barriers that stood between us and God that we might have God. It is through Jesus God has given us the gift of himself. The purpose of Job's steadfastness through suffering was to reveal for us that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy toward sinners.
In fact, Job's life of suffering as a blameless and upright man, Job chapter 1 says, his life actually foreshadows, and his suffering actually foreshadows the suffering of another man, a greater man, who wasn't just blameless before men, but blameless before God, Jesus Christ. Job's suffering wasn't meaningless. It pointed us ahead to Christ. Jesus' suffering wasn't meaningless. It was to reveal God's compassion and mercy towards sinners. It is compassionate and merciful for God to give Himself to sinners so freely. In our suffering and trial and all the pressure that comes with them, we can rest assured of this. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. In Christ, He is not against us, in other words. We've got a thousand why questions, and every one of them we can come back to this assurance. He is not against us if we are in Christ He is for us. For those in Christ, our greatest misery is behind us. The suffering under the wrath of God is behind us because Jesus absorbed it all. He suffered under God's wrath. It is over. And now there's grace for His beloved. Even as we walk through the trials, there is grace in that God is giving us Himself until we get to see Him face to face. If He did not spare His only Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? The purpose of our suffering is that we might have more of God. He is eternal life itself, and He is coming back for us. The coming of the Lord is near. The judge is standing at the door. Be patient. Establish your hearts, brothers and sisters. Stand on this promise of the Lord's return for us. His grace is sufficient to keep us until then, just like He kept the prophets and the Job. And the Job. He is the Job. Just like he kept the prophets and Job through their trials, he will keep you. Your patient endurance is possible, but not in your own strength. God must do it. And in the pressures of our trials, his glory will be enough for us. His glory in Christ will be enough for us to keep pressing on. His glory in Christ will be enough for us not to grumble about our brothers and sisters. His glory in Christ will be enough for us to show integrity with our mouths. So look to that glory in the Word and remind each other of it. Ladies, that's why you met yesterday morning. There's about 30 of you up here. That's why you met to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. When that Word dwells in us richly, we will be prepared to endure patiently the trials that this life brings. So let us pray to see more of Him as we speak Him to one another until He comes again. Let's pray together.